So we are closing out 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. So I'm going to go ahead and have you guys open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And even though my wife is not at church today, she did get preached to this morning because she was asking questions about the message. And she's like, oh, gosh, I want to sit there and listen to that. And she's like, you, you, she always does that. She goes, you should say that. You should say that because I'm preached to her. I said, well, I plan, I plan on saying it at church. Like, why wouldn't I say it? But, you know, it's odd. It's weird. That, that's the difficulty sometimes with my wife and I. She doesn't get to sit in service that much. So um, she does listen to her husband preach, though, online when she gets a chance to. But... Um, she is uh, definitely like my, she's my co-pilot, but she's also, um, she's a critic, but a, a helpful critic as well. And she's an, an encourager. So yeah, yeah. So she's, you got to say that, remember to say that. But I hope in, in the past few weeks that we've been going through this chapter that things have, have clicked with you guys, because there's been so much in here to talk about and to speak about. And basically to summarize this chapter, it is the hope chapter as we've gone through and we've discussed and talked about the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead. And in this week, closing out 15, we're going to talk about the resurrection body. Okay. But just to give a little bit of context here, once again, in regards to this chapter, Paul is, is, is addressing this church because there are some discussions, some, um, some misinformation regarding the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of those who have perished, and he, he's concerned about this because if you are a Christian, a fundamental element to your faith, a foundation of your faith is what? The risen Christ. And if we don't have a risen Christ, if we don't have the resurrection, we don't have Christianity. We have a dead Jesus. And this is a concern for him. And this is a concern, once again, as I speak about and talk about, and I want to make sure that I emphasize this because I stand up here a lot as a pastor and I do bring up a lot about false teachings in the church today, Okay. I don't ever want to stand up here and just sound like that I'm chucking darts at people. I do believe that there are people that truly love the Lord and they want people to love Jesus Christ. But there are people out there in the midst of that, if they're deceivers or if they're the ones being deceived, that preach these false gospels. And it was obviously um, something that, that Paul had to address back in his day. And it's something that I feel like we, we should be addressing as well in the church today. As you guys know, many religions have their own version of Jesus, right? You can think about that. If, if they claim to be Christian or if they claim not to be Christian, Muslims have their own Jesus. Mormons have their own Jesus. We have a resurrected Jesus, right? We have a Jesus that is God. So when we look at this element, we look at this foundation, the foundation of every church, which should be what? Christ crucified, which Paul tells us in the beginning of, of Corinthians, this is an element that if it's not preached properly, it's not taught properly, can lead to some pretty goofy teachings. And he is addressing that here. He's addressing um, Gnosticism, these individuals that are coming and saying, you know, they have this secret knowledge of certain things. Greek philosophers that everything is basically spiritual, right? That, that our bodies are just these horrible, icky things and everything of the world is horrible and icky and that there needs to just be this simple separation from spirit from body and that's what we should strive and achieve for. So there's all these weird teachings, even a discussion once again about the resurrect or the dead resurrecting. People struggled with this mindset and this is kind of what we're going to be going into in verse 35 because 
People question this. There was rabbinical teachings even going on back then that, that taught that when you are resurrected, you're resurrected with the body that you were put in the ground with. Well, this kind of stumped people. So what about those who had their heads chopped off? What about those who were burned? And these are questions that I will even say to you right now, even in my faith, and some of you maybe are sitting in the pews, which I don't want you to ever feel ashamed of. These are questions sometimes that even mature Christians can struggle with as well. Because I've had people ask me as a pastor, well, how do people rise from the grave if they've been burned? How do people rise from the grave with Jesus if we're, if we're called to rise with him if their heads have been cut off and all this stuff? Like, these are questions that are asked. What about bodies that are old and, and all that, or they've decomposed? How do they... So this is what Paul is wanting to address. And he's addressing it not only to Christians, but he knows, once again, as I spoke about last week, that when he's speaking to the church, that he has individuals that are amongst them that maybe are provoking this mindset. They're not believers. We've been a church for five years. We've had people come in here simply just to listen to us speak and teach with a look on their face like you're out of your mind. They've had family members just sit there and say, come to church, listen to Pastor Josh preach, worship with us and all that. And you can just see it on their face. They reject the message that's being spoken to them. And that's written in the book, in the Bible, that that's to be. Paul knows as he's speaking this to people that he's talking to individuals that are probably amongst his church that aren't believers. So he tells us in 2 Corinthians that we're called to test our faith and things like that. So when he's addressing this issue with the resurrection body, all these questions, Paul does a phenomenal job in really just speaking logically to people. Paul was a great teacher. He was a, a great writer, if you think about it. But I'm going to go through 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 58. But before I do that, I, I, do, I want to go to another part of the Bible, and I want you guys to stay in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to read to you a story that you guys are very familiar with when it comes to Jesus raising someone from the dead. Okay? Lazarus. And this is a, a significant story when it talks about, and teaching to us, when it talks about our faith in Christ. Okay? Because this is a story that, and I'm going to try my best to not preach multiple sermons within a sermon, but I, I will make sure that I package it up and link it up to you guys because this is something that is very powerful and something that's very significant for us to remember because God's word defends his word. And I always want you guys to remember that. So in, in John chapter 11, I'm going to start there. You guys just have your eyes on me and, and listen. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. And I want you guys to remember everything that we've preached and taught about leading up to this and what I'll go into today. So it's for God's glory. God's glory. So when he's using glory here, he's speaking about manifestation, the showing of, okay? You guys have read the word glory so often in the Bible. This is what they're making reference to. It's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So this 
that's going to happen to show the manifestation of God, which Jesus being used to do it will in sense and indirectly glorify Jesus, showing that through the works that Jesus performs, he is in fact sent by God the Father, right? So this is what Jesus is wanting to emphasize here. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews, were tried to, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, there are, not, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went out to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. I want you guys to think about this, because remember, this is our hope in Christ. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go, let us also go, that we may die with him. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, I've taught about this in the past. I'm going to teach it again. There's a purpose and a reason why Jesus waited for four days if you understand Jewish teaching. Okay? Jewish belief used to think that when a person was dead for three days, that there was some miracle that could be performed through God, that this person, or by a prophet, or through some kind of miraculous intervention, that a person could come through prayer and raise this person from the dead. Three days, the soul of this individual would be with this person and this body. After three days, the soul would no longer recognize the body because of whatever reason, decomposition, whatever the case may be, and the spirit would leave the body. If a body was to rise outside of three days, it only happened for one reason and one reason only. God himself must have raised him from the dead. So people sit there and they go, why did Jesus wait? But there's a purpose and a reason why he waited for that fourth day. He knew that the Jewish people watching, the rabbis, all these people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, by performing this miracle on the fourth day had significance to it. So I just wanted to throw that out there to you guys. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I'm going to focus on that passage because I want you guys to think about this. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. How many of you, when you guys hear that, if you had been here, my brother would not have died? How many of you hear that and think, it's a little bit of criticism and rebuke to Jesus? How many of you have been taught that that's what she's doing? Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would have lived. This is why as a preacher and a pastor, I want to teach you guys to read stuff in context. I want you guys to look around the sentence of what's going on, the, the, the period in the mark of what's going on. Because she follows up with that statement, but I know that even now God will give you 
whatever you ask. She goes on to say, Jesus said to her, or Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Now listen to Martha's expression of faith. Listen to it. It doesn't take away her sadness. It doesn't take away her mourning, but she has faith in the midst of it. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She goes on to sit there and say, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And Mary heard that she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. I asked my wife this morning, as I said, I was preaching to her. I said, how many of you would probably have gotten up and followed someone? They're sitting there, they're crying, and then just instantly they get up and they just rush out of the house. People get kind of curious, like, what's going on? Like, why did Chris just jump up and run out of the house? People, maybe they just want to go see what's going on. Like, is she okay? We're, we're here with her. We're mourning with her. Something sad has happened. She gets up and shoots out the house, and everyone goes out to follow her. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Listen to this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I asked my wife this morning, I said, when we read that, we do read it through this, this lens of our own hearts, right? Like it's Jesus, it's the Messiah himself, but it would be hard to know that he had this ability to do something and he didn't come to do it and to sit there and to say to him, if you only would have been here, we know that he wouldn't have died. But that's not what Mary and Martha are saying. Their faith is encompassing this story. What they're really saying is, is this is a bad thing that happened, a horrible thing that's taken place. My brother is gone, but that is the faith that we're called to have as Christians. We can be living in a life that is just laced with, with turmoil, laced with tragedy, but as Christians, we know where our hope lies. We know where our peace lies. And it doesn't mean that we're called to retract from being sad. It doesn't mean that we're called to retract from, from mourning. We're told to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. But there's this beautiful story here where Jesus is speaking to these women, and these women are speaking to Jesus, and they're expressing their sorrow. Jesus, when he saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. I asked my wife, I said, when we read that, do you think that Jesus was upset with them by maybe what they said? Maybe upset with them because they were sad. But wait a minute, I'm Jesus Christ. You, you should know, right, that I can raise your brother from the dead. Why are you sad? And I told Jelaine, I said, once again, in context, when you read this, when you read the Greek, when you read what's being said, Jesus wasn't troubled because 
they were upset or because they thought Jesus should have done something. Jesus was troubled because he was showing compassion to these people. As a man and as God, he was expressing this sorrowful compassion for his followers. He was troubled because he saw that Mary and Martha were going through something that was troubled. When you read the Greek, the stirred up in spirit, the moved in spirit, how many of you have had a friend or a loved one that's had something tragic happen to them? How do you feel inside? You feel troubled? Do you feel moved in your spirit? This is the expression that Jesus was laying out. He's showing compassion, fully God, fully man. But wanting to remind them in the midst of this interaction that I am the resurrection, I am the life, and those who believe in me, they'll never die. They never will. And Mary and Martha in this interaction, they are expressing their faith in him throughout their interaction. If, if you would have been here, my brother would have lived. We know this. It's a horrible thing. It's a sad thing. But you are Jesus. You're the Messiah. I know right now, I, I, I hold so fast to you that right now, I believe you can raise my brother from the dead. I do. But my faith lies in knowing that my brother in the last days will rise in the resurrection. This is where we need to be as Christians. Because many of you have lost loved ones, have had horrible things happen to you in your life, and you've prayed for miracles. We're called to do that. We can do that. We can seek miracles. But where does our faith lie? It lies in a day to come. Our hope lies in a day to come. So the Christian's posture, the Christian's position, when, when we look at the suffering, Paul speaks about it. He petitions the Lord three times to remove the thorn from his side. Did God do it? No. But what did he do? He amped up the grace. This is beautiful. We see this in the story of Job. Oh my gosh, the most beautiful place for a Christian to be is on their knees resigning to anything except Jesus Christ. And we're going to read in this final part of 1 Corinthians 15 the beauty and the glory that we have coming as Christians. And, and Paul is laying out this logical explanation for those who doubt. If I was a young person, which I was one time, and I heard this story, how do people rise from the dead? Okay, you're, you just believe that because it's just what the Bible says. Yeah, I'll give you that. But creation testifies for the presence of God. And Paul did a masterful job at just using logical explanation, as Jesus even did in the parables, right? So, starting off here in verse 35, But someone will ask, and I say amen to that because I have been asked, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? So with thinking and... Okay, my grandma was cremated. We read about the, the disciples who were beheaded and they were boiled in tar and all. How are these people going to be raised? And then you have people teaching that that's not going to happen. Or you have people teaching like, oh, those bodies that are in the ground will come back up. Wait a minute. How does a tar-boiled body come back up? Out of, like, how's all this going to happen? Like, this is our hearts. We question things. And questioning's not bad, but once again, Paul's response to this to people who are Christian... And even those who aren't is wonderful. 
Some of your Bibles say what? You fools. Mine says, how foolish. He's questioning the competency of the person that's asking the question. And why, why is he doing that? Because he, once again, is using creation and the things that we see in everyday life as a sheer testimony to the existence and the power of God. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just as a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Trent, you farm. When you put something in the ground, is what you put in the ground the very thing that comes up when you harvest it? Do you have a seed pop up out of the ground and you go up and you pick the seed back out of the ground? What comes out of the ground when you plant a seed of corn during harvest? Does, does the identity of the, the corn and the seed match? You get A plus. Good answer. This is logic. This is what he's trying to explain. Something ha- What we put in the ground, what we're, it, it dies. It's, it's whatever. For it to come about in another fashion in a way is not illogical. We see it every day. And I love that he uses the analogy because once again, when you look at the parable of the growing seed, what does Jesus say? Even the farmer doesn't know how the seed germinates. He just puts it in the ground. He just waters it. He plants it. What we're called to do as Christians. And we struggle with that. I could go off on a tangent on that. We think we're in the growing business. We are not. We're in the sowing and watering business as Christians. Just put the seed out there. Tend to it. Water it. Observe it. Whatever. You're not growing anybody. That's God's job. That is God's job. Perhaps a weeder of something else, but God gives it a body as he determines. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. Once again, he's speaking logical talk here. And when he's speaking about flesh, he's speaking about body. He sits there and says, people have one kind of flesh. Why its flesh looks one way. Animals have another. Why its body and our dog Kona don't have the same body. I mean, this is just logical thought. Like, they don't. Why it doesn't walk around on four legs, Kona does. Like, yeah, there you go. We're, we're, we see this every day. Birds have another and fish another. Are you guys amening to this? Because this is not like anything outside of our wheelhouse of comprehension. There are also heavenly bodies and there are those who are who have earthly bodies. And this earthly word, epigaios, in the Greek, which basically means that that belongs to the earth. When God created man, what did he come from? Came from the earth, right? Came from the dirt. We have these natural bodies. And what we've just covered throughout 15, what I've rehashed to you guys as well, that under the federal headship of Adam, we all are born, we all are born into sin, right? These bodies are going to perish. They're going to fail. That's inevitable, right? But those who identify with Christ fall under the federal headship of Christ, believe in the name of Christ. There's no death. There's just simply falling asleep. Okay? And he's going to go into that here. But the splendor, some of your guys' Bibles say glory, right? But the splendor, once again, this word is meaning manifestation, the showing, okay? The splendor, the glory of the heavenly bodies is one kind. So it looks a certain way. It's, it's expressed a certain way. 
And the splendor, the glory of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of glory, manifestation, right? The sun looks a certain way. Once again, not outside of our wheelhouse of comprehension. The moon and the stars, another. Another form of glory, another form of splendor. And the star, and star differs from star in its splendor. No star looks the same, right? At least that's what I've been told. I'm not an astrologer. I've been told they, none of them, they're like snowflakes. They, that one is the same, okay? So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. We are created into sin. Amen? We are of Adam upon our birth. We are perishable. Bodies fade. Many of you are saying amen to that right now in your minds. They do. And this, once again, this goes back to when I hear people stop and they go praying for healing and, and all this. I believe in miracles. I believe that as Christians, we're called to pray and ask for those things. But don't deceive yourself in thinking that the will of God is just basically found and based around the, the preservation of these sinful, perishing bodies. Because there are a lot of faithful Christians out there that don't, exp or don't experience physical healing on this side of eternity. There are Christians out there who are physically ill and failing when it comes to their bodies. And if anything, the glory that comes from that is, is it draws them closer to Jesus Christ. But we can see teachings going on out there to where it's a matter of faith based on your healing. So if you're not healed yet, Linda, your faith needs to be amped up a little bit more. No, 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 no. Go back to the story of Mary and Martha. Their brother died. They were encountered and in the presence of Jesus. They knew that Jesus could have kept their brother alive. They knew that. We know that as Christians. We know that if God wants to, I could lose my arm and he could grow it back for me. We have to believe that as Christians. But if he doesn't, I know, as Martha said, that when the last day comes and I'm resurrected in glory with Christ, I'm not going to have this body. I'm going to have a brand new body. A body like Christ had when he was resurrected. You guys remember what kind of body that was? It's a body that was radiant. It was a body that was perfect. It was a body where when he meets his disciples, even ate, right? You guys have any food for me? And they made him fish. It was a body that when you look back at the fall and you look back in Genesis, it was the body that you and I were supposed to have if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten from the tree of knowledge, but only ate from the tree of life. But do you know where else the tree of life pops up again in Scripture? I'm going to jump forward. Linda got it right out the gate. I'm going to read this to you guys real quick before I continue on in 1 Corinthians 15. You look at Revelation 22. You guys go ahead and stay where you're at. Eden restored. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life and clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. 
bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And in the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Then they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of lamp or the light of sun, for the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever in eternity. Is this beautiful plan that God had before the beginning of time. It's this beautiful hope that we're called to have as Christians. And I said to my wife this morning, I said, if we just preach this to ourselves and made it a discipline, if we remembered and stayed disciplined to gather once a week as saints, as children of God, to remind each other, not just me running my mouth and spitting all over the place, but you guys to meet with each other and remind each other in the midst of what you have going on in your life that, you know what? I like the video you showed me this morning because I'm, I'm going to incorporate that in the message. She showed me a video of, I take it he was a Christian comedian, right? He talked about a tornado that he experienced. Mark Lowry. Mark Lowry experienced a tornado in Texas. And I love what he said. He said the tornado would have been much more fun to experience if he would have known that he would have lived while he was going through it. And everyone laughed. Christians, life is that much more enjoyable when you know you're never going to die. You'll fall asleep. These bodies will perish. You'll succumb to illness. There'll be mourning. There'll be sadness. But we've read throughout the scriptures that there will be a day where all tears are wiped away. There's no more sadness. We're given brand new bodies. And when you want to stop and question and go, well, how is this going to happen? Because if I'm in the ground, if I'm burned, if my family throws me over Lake Michigan and I'm just nothing but powder, how is this going to happen? Well, guess what? What you put in the ground isn't what comes up. And you see it day in and day out. God's going to give us a body that is completely brand new and perfect. It isn't going to be this body. It isn't. And we, we have to grasp that concept. And when we, we put that in our beings, when we stop and we think about it, it should give us a sense of hope, especially in the times that we're in today. So he goes to say, so there will be a resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable and it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. Speaking to Christians here. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. Think about Adam once again, being brought up from the dirt. Okay? The, the, the body was that of natural essence first. Paul's wanting to teach this and stretch this. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. Once again, to recap what I taught about, this is why the virgin birth was essential. Jesus experienced the growth and the manifestation in the physical form in Mary. Being in the womb. Life. But he could not come into this world through the same fashion the way that you and I do of the flesh. 
God knew this. This was all part of the plan. So, through immaculate conception, spiritually being put into Mary, right? Coming down from heaven, he did not fall under the federal headship of Adam. He fell under the federal headship of the one who sent him. Does this make sense? All these things play a role, and this is why theology matters to you guys and understanding this. Because if you don't get it right, it can lead to some pretty off teachings. You read stories of people talking and preaching that Jesus was here on earth, but he wasn't really God. He was just man, or he wasn't God until he became 33 years old, and then God put Jesus and God, fully man, fully God. Jesus became the curse to break the curse. He who knew no sin became sin to beat sin. This is theology 101. Jesus didn't empty himself of his divine being. He humbled himself by leaving the right hand of God to come down to earth, still bearing his godly nature, his godly being. And we have to understand this as Christians. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and it is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Once again, when we are resurrected, we are given bodies like Christ was given upon his resurrection. When you guys consider all of this being said and you think about your lives right now and these impossible circumstances and situations that stand in front of you, I pray and I will pray over this church at the end of service that you guys realize that those impossible circumstances right now, the situations you're in where you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, they are completely outweighed and trump by the hope that Jesus has given you as a Christian. This, day, this, this life will fall away. Troubles today will become the past, and you'll have new troubles tomorrow. But one thing that doesn't leave, one thing that doesn't pass, is the hope in Jesus Christ. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. We just covered this earlier on in the chapter. For the, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that it was written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We just covered this earlier on. The last enemy to be defeated before Jesus hands over the keys to God the Father is what? Death. Death is gone. It is, it is stomped away. It is made worthless and null and void. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. He's letting us know here, there would be no death on earth if there wasn't what? Sin. So if Adam hadn't sinned, would there be death? We read in Romans, what's the wages of sin? Death. He's wanting to express this and teach this. The power of sin is the law. 
People walking around doing heinous things and all that, they didn't realize how real sinful they were and how holy God was until God gave his law. There's a purpose for that as we just covered as well, right? The trespasses will increase as we've read, right? But the more that the trespasses increase, what does that do? It sets the stage for those to be redeemed. The devil's thinking he's building up an army of sinful people. God looks and goes, no, no, no. I'm building up an army of redeemed individuals. That's why I said Jesus doesn't come into your life to make you better, church. He comes into life to bring you life, to bring you to new life. Therefore, my dear, well, let me go here, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, this is huge for you guys, church, stand firm. Let nothing move you. I ask you guys today, what in your life is moving you from this hope? What moves you every day from reminding yourself of this hope? And I want you to think about that, and I want you to pray about that. My dad, my late father, told me that the essence of a man, and this was what he would do, he would look back on his own life and his great counseling because he would tell me basically the things that he did wrong. He would look at what he did and he would do the op- look at the opposite and he goes, this is what you should do. One thing that my dad always stressed to me as a man was he says, men don't move. They don't run. He goes, it isn't a matter about being perfect, but it's a matter of not budging. You don't budge as a man. And I say as a Christian, we hear in that song, let your heart be still. You guys are surrounded by so much stuff that moves you. Literally unhinges you from this hope. You don't have this hope, you lose your peace. It all connects. And I'm not saying, when I say, well, you guys might hear me go, don't move, don't budge. We get this like, about us. Like, yeah, I got to stay on my ground as a Christian. No, I'm even talking about things that you do that you bring into your life that sway and move you. Decisions and choices you make. You guys, this life and this world is filled with so many things that has this, this ability to, to just deplete you from your faith. Right? Just rock you. You guys will be confronted every day with things that can move you. But we are just reminded in here that guess what? Sin has no more power over you. We've learned in studying 1 Corinthians, the whole line from First Corinthians, from a lot of people, the devil made me do it. No, 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 no. You have the Holy Spirit in you. We read in 1 Corinthians that there will be no temptation that is uncommon to mankind. Right? And that anything that you go through, God will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. If anything, he will provide you with a way out. So when we stop and we sit there, and we, we want to sit there and blame other people. We want to blame this or that for the reason why we're not showing or expressing our hope and our faith. It starts with us. It starts with choice. Sin has an attribute to it that begins with choice. Heavily influenced is all get out. I'll give you guys that. I was talking to my wife. I, I spoke it to, to Mariah. I learned this at a young age. And I want you guys to think about this as well. All the junk you have going on in your life, today, past, future, here's an important place to park yourself. And I'll be real with you guys. And I want you to think about it. How much of it is based off of choice? 
And I'm not saying that like, oh, I've, I didn't have any. I'm talking about even in the sense of influence, right? Even in the sense of selfishness, making decisions and choices maybe to make life more comfortable and it just did nothing but bite you in the butt. If anything, all it did was just unhinge you even from your peace. Made you just stop thinking about as a Christian the hope that you're called to have in Christ. This is how the devil operates. This is how the world operates. And you guys might stop and sit there and go, I got all these things going on around me that are this, this, and this. Yep, I can't move. I can't budge. I got to stay still. I sit there and I, I say to my wife, we were talking about this morning, how many of you allow watching a television to move you? How many of you allow what goes on on your phone in the news to move you? These are all elements that are presented to you day to day. You guys are going to be presented with so many things that once again, they have this ability to rock you and move you. But you're a child of God. Sin does not have a stronghold on you anymore. It doesn't mean that you're not going to. And I don't say that gently to give you permission. Like, well, okay, you said, no, I'm not saying that. We're in the, the, the shop room awaiting the showroom, as I like to say. But as a Christian, what's moving you today from this hope that you're called to have in Jesus Christ? What choices have you made to give that moving element its power? What have you entertained in your life that has allowed you to be moved from this hope? Because as we see, you can have a brother that died. You can have something else horrible in your life, disease, loss, whatever. You can be at the feet of Jesus Christ, bawling, having people around you mourning with you. But you still just know. You know how this is going to end. That is where your faith lies. Those thorns might not be removed from your side, but God's grace will always be amped up. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What are you doing in your life in the role that you play as a mom, as a dad, as a son, as a grandparent, a neighbor, a spouse? In everything that you do, what are you doing to give glory to God? How are you expressing yourself? How are you expressing this grace that Paul spoke about earlier as well that is evident in the way that he lives? It's not I who work, but the grace that lives in me. The fruitfulness of yourself as a Christian. This isn't an acts thing. This isn't a deeds thing. This is a, I speak to you as wise people, a person who claims to be a Christian. And the work that you do, as long as you're doing it to give God glory and honor, it can't be without vain. It won't be without vain. Or it won't be in vain. These are things that we have to park ourselves in and remember as Christians. Amen? Does this all connect and make sense to you guys? So I, I want to pray for you guys before we head out. I appreciate you letting me run my mouth and do some different sermons beyond sermons here. But I, I want to just pray for your guys' peace, your guys' peace that lies in this hope that is Jesus Christ, this day that, that's yet to come. Amen?
All right. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just once again give you thanks for your word, Lord, and I, I give you thanks for your promises. I give you thanks for the hope that you have laid in front of us, Lord. The, the hope that, that instills a sense of just encouragement, the hope that it, sent, it instills a sense of peace in us, Lord. I pray that this body and even the individuals that may be listening online, that they, through you and by you, do a complete and utter heart inventory of where they're at in life. Lord, is this whole book of 1 Corinthians is just really hit on some topics, some, some deep-rooted topics that are essential and vital for us as a church, as a body, and for us as individual believers. Lord, I pray that the individuals, when they go home today, they, they seek and look around and ask you to show them what it is that they're allowing to move them from their peace and their hope today. Lord, if it be by choice or if it be by just simply existing in this fallen world, because we know of your grace and we know of your mercy, Lord, that if they even come to you in repentance of these things, that they are allowing to entangle them, which is preventing them from running the race that you've called for them, Lord, that you'll give them that supernatural power and that strength to soldier on. And Lord, I, I, I ask that these individuals, um, through prayer and through petition of you, just continue to seek out your will in their life, Lord. And that will simply being to live in a fashion and a way that gives you honor and glory. And everything that they do, Lord, is we're told that the only thing that we truly have to give you is our bodies, is a living sacrifice, being poured out like a drink offering. So I pray that this body realizes that and stops and parks themselves in that truth and asks themselves, am I what I am doing in everyday life? Is it truly giving you honor? Is it truly giving you glory? And even the conviction that comes from them, Lord, from your spirit, it is the Holy Spirit that also reminds them and embraces them in forgiveness and love because that is your mercy. That is the power of the blood that you shed on the cross for us. So Lord, I pray for peace over this body. I pray for comfort. I pray for healing as well. I pray that these individuals will remind themselves daily as they seek you out for that daily bread as you call for us to do, not to be anxious about anything, that they just simply remind themselves of the gospel that you've preached to us, that you've shown us, that you've revealed to us, and that they keep their eyes focused on you and the hope that you've laid out in front of us. It is in your name, Jesus Christ, that I pray all these things. Amen.